is funny about cycleways is there's a huge latent demand for walking and cycling for short trips. And as soon as there was less traffic on the roads under level four, you could see a lot more people getting out um, on their bikes. And it's because they felt safe. Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week, I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. My guest this week is Julianne Genta, the Minister for Women, Associate Minister of Health and Associate Minister of Transport. She's a Green MP. She has a Master's of Planning Practice from Auckland University and studied at both UC Berkeley and in Paris. I believe she was born in Minnesota, grew up in California, and now here in New Zealand. Welcome to this climate business, Julianne. Lovely Where to join. are you spending your bubble? Uh, we moved to Wellington at the beginning of last year because we had a small baby and with my ministerial role, uh, it was just much easier to be based here in Wellington. So we've been in Wellington uh, for, you know, just at home for five weeks. Uh, I totally understand this is a challenging time for many people, but um, for a politician who's used to having to travel constantly, it was sort of a, a freeing to be able to work from home. Right. How are the Zoom meetings going? You must be becoming a total pro at um, at managing the um, the online meeting experience. Well, yeah, it's actually gone way smoother than I thought it would, given most of the Western world seems to be using Zoom now. I was amazed at how well it was working. And it's offered some new opportunities. Like I had the um, Minister for Infrastructure and Communities in Canada reach out to me with her parliamentary secretary, which is sort of like an associate minister of transport. Um, and we pulled together a Zoom meeting on a Sunday morning and were able to spend half an hour discussing some of our ideas around the response. And I can't help but think that before the COVID-19 lockdowns, that probably wouldn't have happened. It does seem that COVID is providing an opportunity for a step change of some sort. There's a lot of discussion happening out in the community. I know that you, you, the Greens have been quite um, aggressive in promoting some interesting policies around what a post-COVID recovery could look like. Have you seen that momentum? And uh, is that what you're responding to? Or do you think there is actually a real opportunity within government to set a different kind of agenda? Well, after COVID-19 has passed and the world, well, at least New Zealand, has successfully navigated this challenge, the challenge of climate change is still there. And if we are going to be investing and spending lots of money to get out of this economic shock, it has to be future-proofing us for the challenges that lie ahead. And I think that while there's good public consciousness of that, um, there, there will still be the same pressures to go back to businesses as usual, or there will be pressure from vested interests for certain types of projects that might lock us into a high carbon future. And so it's just really important, I think, to us to inject that climate lens into the debate about how we respond to the economic shock. How's that going down within 
this coalition group, you know, you'll be under some pressure. Uh, uh, I see that you managed to sneak in the widening of footpaths and cycleways, which is a, a great initiative. Is this sort of cycleways by stealth? No, I, I think it is a, a practical reaction to the need to socially distance to enable people to stay mobile as we come out of level four to level three and eventually level two and beyond. And, um, you know, it's actually something that many other cities and countries are looking at doing as well. That was why the minister from Canada wanted to talk to us about our initiative. They want to do something very similar. Um, and also the thing is funny about cycleways is there's a huge latent demand for walking and cycling for short trips. And as soon as there was less traffic on the roads under level four, you could see a lot more people getting out um, on their bikes and it's because they felt safe. And the reality is that unless we provide that environment that is safe for them, we're never going to get as high levels of cycling as we would otherwise. And that has benefits, not just in a COVID-19 situation, not just for climate change. It's just a more practical way of enabling people to get around. So it's really taking advantage of the lower traffic and the need to enable people to stay mobile, to roll out things quickly. How many councils have taken up your offer of uh, subsidies? And do you have a sense of uh, um, a metric yet about how many um, paths are being created? Well, the fund that we announced, uh, the initial applications close next week. So we'll see what the initial round looks like. But so far, it sounds like there's been extremely high demand from councils around the country. And I rang and spoke to a lot of mayors and councillors a few weeks ago to encourage them to apply. And I do think there is a lot of interest. And I know that some places like Nelson and Auckland Transport have already gone ahead and started uh, creating more space for people, which typically had been just for a few cars, um, even to deal with level three. I want to come to um, the fee bait experience, the um, and just see whether you've. Do you think that the fee bait could be revived in some form? And and maybe if you just give us a, a very quick explanation of what it was, um, because it <clears throat> it seemed to be um, uh, an idea, a proposal that had broad support and was scuppered really by your coalition partner. I mean, you even had the motor industry supporting it. But um, before we get into the politics of it, tell us about what it was. Well, the two policies we put forward, we called the clean car standard and clean car discount are meant to work together. Um, one is just a fuel efficiency standard and the other, as you say, is a fee bait. And it's been, if you look at the countries around the world who've achieved some reductions of emissions from their light vehicle fleet, they have all, the, the most effective policies have been these two types of policies. One um, affects supply. It says that vehicle manufacturers and retailers must meet um, a certain average uh, fuel economy or um, emissions um, level. And then that's going down over time. So that encourages them to make and sell more low emissions vehicles relative to high emissions vehicles. And then the fee bait side of it, or the clean car discount, is to provide that financial incentive to influence demand. And it's great because it's um, fiscally neutral. Uh, government's not subsidizing cars, but we are just sort of saying, 
everyone in New Zealand needs to play a role in helping clean up the vehicle fleet. We understand that some people can't buy low emissions vehicles. They still need bigger vehicles, but this means they can be part of the solution. So they, you know, they pay a little extra for the higher emitting vehicles and that provides us with a fund that we can use to then significantly discount low emissions vehicles. That will really help because there's lots of people who want to buy low emissions vehicles, but you know, if on the day when they go to the car yard, they see that the higher emissions vehicle is cheaper, it's, it's, it's sometimes going to be hard for them to make that decision. Do you have a hope that that scheme would be revived in this new kind of environment? Is there a possibility of, um, of bringing it back to the table? Um, I can't speak for all of the parties in government, but I can say that it's still a major party for the Green Party, and I believe it's a priority for the Labour-led government. And, you know, initially when we went out to consult, we had the support of all the parties in government. But, of course, um, the National Party decided to run a misinformation campaign against the policy um, that probably put pressure on um, New Zealand first to pull their support for the policy uh, for the actual implementation. But I do think that everybody knows we have to do something. And the reality is there isn't there isn't much else we can do to really make a significant difference to the light fleet. And one of the funniest and most interesting things about it is that, um, you know, if you look at uh, policies to reduce carbon emissions, it's assumed that they have a cost. And so we talk about marginal abatement costs to compare which policies reduce emissions at the lowest cost. And for these policies, the marginal abatement cost is negative. So there's no cost to the policies. They um, overall to the economy, they offer huge uh, economic benefits because they reduce uh, the amount that businesses and households have to spend on buying petrol. So actually the biggest benefits of the policy aren't the carbon emissions, they're the cost savings on operating vehicles over time. I guess what it gets to is that people don't like being told what to do and the sense of um, freedom that might exist and that the ute has, has been such a fundamental part of New Zealand culture. The double cab ute only really became a popular vehicle in the last uh, five to ten years. So I uh, I would challenge that idea that it's um, something that goes all the way back to the beginning of New Zealand culture. Um, there's no doubt that it has been heavily marketed by vehicle manufacturers as a practical vehicle that enables you to um, tow a boat, um, carry large loads, and you know have four passengers. Um, you know, so you treat it like the family car. Uh, but the truth is there's a big cost to, to that vehicle and uh, to operating the vehicle. And I think with the fee bait, we're still giving people choice. We're not banning those vehicles. We're just saying you can have that, but you're going to have to also make some contributions so that um, we can clean up our car fleet. And I think that's fair. You've put out some other policies. Um, the you, you want to spend something in the order of $9 billion on electrifying and introducing high-speed rail, uh, it sounds like a great idea. Can you tell us about the, the stages that you might introduce that and, and how you might win over, again, your colleagues at a parliament level? Well, I think that we just need to demonstrate that this is something that um, is feasible 
and that um, is realistic and that there will be huge benefits to it and that it's popular. And so that's why we put it out to the public. We got a really, really positive reaction. I think people instinctively like rail. I mean, when they go overseas and they are able to take the train, they find it a really pleasant and convenient experience. And they think, why can't we have that in New Zealand? And the truth is, uh, there's no good reason why we can't have it in New Zealand. The only the only reason is because previous governments, um, you know, uh, failed to invest in rail. It was privatized. Um, it's been stripped back and mainly just used to transport freight. And some of the um, old school economic criticism of rail is uh, really, really missing the big economic picture. Um, so. So we looked at our largest population centers. We looked at the, the rail that exists there and what sort of investment could be done in the short term to mean that you could operate at higher speeds. Um, there would have to be some dr- double tracking in some places or passing loops. Um, and you can buy um, new rolling stock or trains um, that run on narrow gauge. I don't know if you've heard this argument. It might be very nerdy, but sometimes people say, oh, well, we can't have... We can't have higher speed rail in New Zealand because we have narrow gauge. Mm, uh, and the reality is they have it in Japan on regional rail. They have it in Queensland. Uh, they have it in Malaysia. So that's what we modeled our proposal off of. It's phased. Um, it's practical. It says, how do we demonstrate that in the long term, there will be a, you know, five to 10 years, we could have a, a passenger services operating multiple times a day between Auckland, Hamilton, Tauranga, between Wellington, Palmerston North, uh, Honganui, um, and you know, in the suburbs of Christchurch, where there's been a lot of population growth since the earthquake, we need to invest in some sort of rapid transit. The rail line's already there; it makes sense to um, invest in bringing it up to scratch, uh, buying the trains that are needed, investing in the electrification because that um, makes the service smoother and more comfortable. It also means that there's less adverse um, impacts on the communities that the rail lines go through. And of course, again, it's one of those things where it reduces our uh, need to import oil to run our transport services. Sure. The the, uh, New Zealand First have shown an interest in train uh, or in rail, and they've talked about um, extending um, to Whangarei. Uh, Can you explain the politics of it, how, how will, I'm assuming that you would need their support to get this through. What what has to happen at your end? Well, I, I mean, I know that they are interested in rail. And so, you know, my hope is that if we show them a proposal like this uh, that will benefit the, some of the regions of New Zealand, that they will be supportive. Um, in our plan, we also saw potential for further extensions which could see passenger services going to Napier, to Rotorua, um, up to Whangarei, potentially. Um, there is a lot of investment going into that um, Northland line, and we, we saw potentially even up to Bay of Islands. Um, so, you know, it wouldn't just benefit Auckland and Wellington. It's, it really is about um, connecting regional regions with our largest cities so that people can move more easily. And there's huge time savings for people. And I think that that's the economic benefit that hasn't been factored in by your traditional economists. And that's when you don't have to drive, you get um, an hour or two hours of 
productive time where you can make phone calls, work on your laptop, you can uh, rest and relax, you can have a beer after a long day at work. Um, you can't do any of those things when you're driving. And so even if uh, it's about the same time driving as train, if you have a regular service, a lot, some enough people will opt to use it that it will be worth having it. I think it may also address the housing situation, right? If you're able to commute from a distant suburb in a more comfortable way, it might reduce the pressure on on the um, on those fringe suburbs. Absolutely, and we can see that type of urban development happening in other countries. It used to happen here in New Zealand, um, and where you get kind of a a nice little village forming around your rail stations and a reasonable amount of housing, you know, within walking and cycling distance of the train station. And that allows people uh, a certain lifestyle um, if, if they're happy with the commute. And again, commuting by train is um, if you have frequent reliable services and they aren't overcrowded, that is a, a really, really good alternative to having to drive everywhere or having to drive for half an hour or an hour. I want you to think about your experience as a planner and your uh, the, the knowledge you have of systems change because really what we're talking about is systems change, right? To get people out of cars into multimodal um, transport options really is um, it's changing the whole system. It's the infrastructure, it's the behaviour, it's the actual modes of transport. How does that get done? Are there examples of systematic change that have been done elsewhere that you could that we could model on? Yeah, absolutely. And I usually start by looking at well, how do we get into this situation? Because if you go back, you know, pre nineteen fifties in New Zealand, we had transit oriented cities and we had electrified trams in um, you know five or six cities in New Zealand that went you know right across the city. Uh, you could get from central Auckland to Onihanga on the tram for a very, very small um, fee. And um, we had it in Wellington. Um, there's there's many cities that had trams. And we had uh, regular passenger services, rail passenger services as well. And the reason that, you know, we ended up in this situation where everyone needs to use a car to get most places isn't as simple as, well, people just love their cars. It it was decisions made by city engineers, uh, urban planners, and politicians in some cases to not invest to to rip up the tram lines, to um, to sell off the rail, to um, invest in roads at the expense of everything else, and to orient new development, new residential development entirely around um, residential suburbs where everyone needs to get a car to get anywhere. And so it's it's been engineered to be car only. And so I always thought there'd be quite an opportunity because there is this um, group of people who don't have the options that they would like to be able to walk and cycle safely, to live in a neighborhood that's walkable, uh, that has a little bit more density, to have that affordable housing option closer to uh, where they work and to have the passenger transport options. And so I thought, well, if we just if we just do those things, those people will use it. And then all the people who need to or want to continue driving um, will be better off because there'll be less congestion on the roads. Mm -hmm. And the people who live on the edge of the city um, will be able to maintain their kind of semi-rural lifestyle if there isn't continual urban sprawl going further and further out um, and kind of 
you know, bringing all this development around them that they probably didn't want. So I, so I always thought there's just the leadership needs to come from politicians, planners and engineers. But um, there is a bit of a political economy around the car, which means that um, it's hard to even change the focus of investment because you know, the institutions are used to delivering things a certain way. They're used to defining and solving problems a certain way. And mm -hmm. so you need an alignment between the elected representatives um, and the um, technocrats, the bureaucrats who are the experts offering the advice to the politicians. Mm -hmm. And presumably that is um, enthusiastic for, for the whole idea of change. Well, I think it's really hard for someone who's spent 20 years um, planning and building motorways uh, and believing that that's the, you know, they're delivering something really beneficial to the community and they've never been overseas and they don't have a background in economics or, you know, they, it'd be really hard for them to suddenly say, oh, wait, maybe we should be doing something completely different. Mm -hmm. um, especially if they come from this civil engineering background, which, um, you know, is, is all about delivering infrastructure, not determining what's the best way to move people and goods. I put it out there on Twitter for some questions for you, and people are asking um, some questions about um, kind of what about kind of questions, like what about hydrogen? Um, do you have a point of view about hydrogen and its role, particularly in heavy transport, I think is where the, the biggest application could be? Yeah, I, I would not consider myself an expert on hydrogen. Um, I'm open-minded about whether it could be part of the solution, it does seem like it's more likely to be useful for heavy vehicles. Um, and I think that we want to get our policy settings right so that we are incentivizing zero emissions development of infrastructure. But I, I wouldn't want us to go um, too far down the track of, of picking a winner at the expense of other technology um, or other solutions. But I think there will be a role for government to play in at least levering, leveling the playing field for hydrogen because right now um, hydrogen vehicles don't get the ruck exemption that battery electric vehicles get, for example. Uh, and I assume you have the same point of view then about biofuels, about um, and in particular the, the opportunity around um, wood and, and the excess use of, um, of cellulose from, from forestry. I think New Zealand has a huge opportunity to immediately make a difference and reduce emissions in the heavy vehicles with biofuels. Um, and it's actually a shame that we have not been providing that incentive or, you know, like a mandate for biofuels um, in the last, you know, since the last government, the national government came in and got rid of it. Um, we do, you know, obviously at a really large scale, sometimes it can pose other ecological or social issues. But I think that in New Zealand with the wood waste um, and Z Energy have a, you know, a demonstration plant um, we could be producing more of our own fuel here that's zero emissions, and we should certainly be making that part of the immediate solution. Now, another what about question is what about Auckland transport? They seem to be dragging the chain on investment in cycleways. I understand that they haven't spent a fraction of the budget that has been allocated for cycleways. There's only 16 electric buses. There's no plan for electrifying the ferry fleet. Uh, are you impatient with Auckland Transport, do they need a rocker? Um, I do think that Auckland Transport, look, what, what can I say? They have a new board chair and who I think is very committed at uh, delivering change. I think organizationally they've been a bit stuck in the inertia 
of what I was talking about in the past and having a, you know, a lot of engineers and people are used to solving problems a certain way. The cycleways have been slower to roll out because they've ended up being more expensive. And I would like to see them move quicker on the tactical urbanism and reclaiming road space um, for quick, easy, cheap wins, as well as continuing on with those bigger projects, uh, which Mm. require bridges and land acquisition and all the rest of it. And I think that's what slowed down their cycleway plan in the last three years has been this um, focus on delivering the urban cycleways projects, which are like big bike superhighways, which are useful and important. But there's a lot we could do on our existing streets. And I also know that um, there, I, I do think there is a role for central government to help with the acceleration of electrifying buses and public transport. And our government is certainly exploring options for that. Do you, when you think about the um, the next few years, um, uh, everything's up for grabs now, right? But the COVID has has changed everything. Uh, on the other hand, it's changed everything potentially for the better. I, I just wonder whether has your ability to execute now this kind of tactical urbanism a shift in uh, emphasis around the car to public transport and and electrifying the fleet? Do you feel like your arm has been strengthened? Or, or has the sustainability cause really taken a hit as a result of COVID? I want to gauge your sense of optimism. I, I feel very hopeful that we will take the lesson from COVID-19 that when our collective health and well-being is threatened, we can pull together and work together and do things that were previously thought to be impossible to prevent suffering and death. I think that what this has shown us is we are all in this together, not just in New Zealand, but globally. Everyone on the planet is dealing with COVID-19 right now. And so that we have this collective problem. And climate change is a similar collective problem. If we don't all work together and take action, um, it will cause much more suffering and problems than even COVID-19. So I, I hope I'm hopeful that we will see and feel empowered to work together in a way that maybe we didn't before COVID nineteen that we felt um, that that was impossible. And what's the evidence of that? that? That's a great feeling to have. Does it does it feel like it's working its way through the system in Wellington? Um, well, it's early days. You know, it's it's a little bit too early to say what's going to happen and what the support will be for the things that we need to do as we, you know, as the economic shock really starts to set in. And so I I think it could go either way. Um, But I'm hopeful that people will feel this renewed sense of we're all in this together and we can work together to solve our collective problems. And in the economic response, it is important for people to have secure incomes and livelihoods. Um, But there's so much work to do. How could we not be creating jobs in those areas that we know we need? Like we knew we need um, teachers, we need midwives, we need um, people doing restoration of our waterways and planting and conservation work. And we need all of this work to happen to organize society so that we can reduce our dangerous, you know, carbon emissions and reduce waste. So it's entirely within our ability to create jobs doing those things. 
Great, Julia and Genta. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.